Well, good morning again. Good morning, good morning again. In light of the 4th of July being yesterday, and in light of recent events in our country, I thought I'd share a special topical message this morning. Don't normally do topical messages. Usually we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're going to get to the book of Revelation next week, starting that next week. But this, this morning, this morning, we're going to look at the title of my message is The Writing is on the Wall, Jesus is Coming Soon. And so a kind of special topical message. We're going to look at two places this morning. Daniel chapter 5 to begin with, so you can turn there. And then Matthew chapter 24. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And these fine gentlemen will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Those are actually my two points if you're a note taker this morning. Number one, the writing is on the wall. And number two, Jesus is coming soon. Daniel chapter 5 to begin with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in this place, Lord, where we can freely have your word sitting on our laps and to be able to study it, Lord, without any fears and to know, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit are going to speak to our hearts from your word. Lord, we ask that you bless our time together, Lord. Give us a understanding and application as we look to the events and the times and the seasons that are going on in our world today. Lord, we thank you for just the promises that we find in your word. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart today? We love you, we praise you, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with this being the 4th of July weekend, I couldn't help but look for a few little jokes, some little bit of comedy before we get into the study about the 4th of July. They're, they're probably more like dad jokes, but what can you expect from me? And so here they come. What did George Washington say to his men before they crossed the Delaware? Get in the boat. Think about that one. Come on. What do you call an American drawing? Yankee Doodle. <laughs> last one. You're going to praise God. What are the last words of the Star Spangled Banner? Play ball. <laughs> Yesterday, we celebrated the 4th of July. Uh, a special day of celebration. It, it's special not only because it's the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but many other things happened that day. Three American presidents were born on the 4th of July. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe. And if you get down to it, Monroe was ready to die several days before. Actually, those are the ones that died on the 4th of July, not born on the 4th of July. Monroe was actually ready to die like a couple days before the 4th of July, and they kept him alive so he could actually die on the 4th of July. Why did they do that? Because the 4th of July meant something to them. Calvin Coolidge was born on that day in 1872. West Point opened July 4th, 1802. Stephen Foster, a distant relative of mine, was born on July 4th. The song America was sung for the first time on July 4th, 1832 in Boston. Alaska and Hawaii both became states on the 4th of July. It's a good one for today. Slavery was abolished in the state of New York on July the 4th, 1845. A year before the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Continental Congress issued a call to all citizens to fast and to pray and to confess their sin that the Lord might bless the land. In fact, here's the quote, and it is recommended to Christians of all denominations to assemble for public worship and to abstain from servile labor and recreation on said day. A year later, July 4th, 1776, that great document, the Declaration of Independence, was signed. 
Did you know that 24 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence held what we refer to today as, as seminary or Bible college degrees? Many of them were ordained pastors. The majority were godly men who loved God and loved His Word. It was on July 30th, 1789, that President George Washington gave his inaugural address, one-third of which was dedicated to the direct supplication to God for guidance and strength for our nation. And with that start, God has blessed our nation. Do you know the first three universities established in the United States were Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And all colleges, all were church colleges, started with the intention of training uh, those for the ministry. Those that went to the schools for the ministry. They were Bible colleges. See, that's what America was all about. And the trouble with America today is that we've stopped listening to our fathers, listening to what uh, they told us God did in their lives long ago. It amazes me how quickly our country's allegiance to Jesus Christ and biblical values have changed. And just a, a matter of 244 short years, we have managed to rewrite history and what our great nation was founded on, and we see the principles of Christianity eroding away. We are a nation blessed by God because we started with a good foundation, a godly foundation based upon God's word, but we are crumbling and crumbling pretty fast because for years we have stopped building on that foundation. It's been said it's easy to lose touch with who you really are when you forget where it is you have come from. And that really is the beginning of our first point here, and that is the writing is on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. See, here before us is the story of a young man. His name is Belshazzar. He had his, at his disposal all the treasuries of the world, thousands of slaves to do his bidding day and night. Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one responsible for the incredible walls of Babylon that were 350 feet high, 87 feet wide. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon was known at that time in the ancient world as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Absolutely beautiful city that all belonged to the grandfather of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the story goes, one day Nebuchadnezzar is checking out the kingdom and all the great things in the kingdom. And, and he says, look at this great kingdom. Look at all that I have built. Look at all that I have done. Just an, an expression of, of his, my royal splendor, he's saying. But, you know, uh, uh, effectively, Nebuchadnezzar was, the, was saying he's the king of the world. And he's bragging about how great he is. Basically saying, I don't need God. Look at all that I have done. And as a result, God turned him into the animal that he had become. God allowed some sort of mental illness to overtake him. And, and the good news is, through it all, he was humbled. When he came to the senses, he believed the God of the Bible, and he turned to the true and living God. Well, he has died now at this point, and he has passed these truths on to his bratty little grandson, Belshazzar, who didn't listen to what Gramps had to say. You know, a lot of times, kids don't listen to people who are older. Every generation thinks they know so much more than the last generation. And there are many in the younger generation that they think, well, socialism is the answer to the world's problems. Or the government, we need more government to help us out. They are the answer. Globalism, that's the answer. My prayer is that they'll see that Jesus is the only answer to this world's problems. See, every generation thinks that they have all the answers and the older generation doesn't know what they're talking about. And on top of that, we're living in a time now where, where even the older people want to be younger. They don't want to acknowledge the passing of time. You know, you shop at that store forever 21. But the problem is you're forever 76. And it's, it's just not cool. It's kind of weird. Not the store, you. <laughs> Listen, it's not like we have to act younger or dress younger. We just need to live to please the Lord and be outspoken for Him, not politics. But you see, here, here in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, he's running the show. He, he's, he's in charge. He's disregarded anything his father, his grandfather had taught him. Uh, he's in charge of the whole kingdom. In fact, 
Belshazzar decides he wants to go so far out of his way that he wants to, to mock God. Not just to say, I don't need God or I, 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 I fail to believe. He said, I'm going to mock God. I'm going to make fun of God. Can I just say that that's really a bad idea? Pastor Greg Laurie said, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit in the wind, you don't pull the mask off of the old, old ranger, and you don't mess around with God. You don't mock God. Because the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. So here is King Belshazzar going out of his way to mock God, disregarding what his grandfather said, thinking he knew everything. He decides he's going to throw this big old feast. He's going to throw a party. Look at now at at Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now listen, I love this part that comes next. In the same hour... The fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. (laughs) It's a great scene. He's having his big old party. They're drinking, having a good old time, partying away. And all of a sudden they, they see this hand writing on the wall. And Belshazzar, he's freaking out. His hips are loosened. His knees are knocking together. He turns white as as a ghost. To paraphrase, as you read on, he calls his astrologers and astronomers in and and says, hey, what's going on? They say, hey, we don't know what's going on. And then his grandmother comes in, presumably the, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. And she says, hey, sonny boy, there's a prophet around when your grandpa was running the country and he might know what's going on. His name is Daniel, and, and he can interpret things for like this. And so he brings him in. And now here comes Daniel, about 90 years old. He's old now. He looks at Belshazzar right in the eye and reminds him of their history. He reminds him of all that God has done in the life of Nebuchadnezzar's grandfather. Oh, how we need Daniels today <laughs> to remind people of all what God has done in our country. But he goes on to remind him in verse 21 how Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. And then he says to Belshazzar, paraphrase, here's the bottom line, you young whippersnapper. (laughs) You've been proud, you've been arrogant, and you've not glorified the God that gives you life and controls your destiny. And then Daniel gives him the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. Look at verse, down to verse 25 through 28. And this is the inscription that was written. Meaning, meaning, tekel upharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting or lacking. Perhaps your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then drop down to verse 30, 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now I can't help but see a similarity with what's happening, what happened in Babylon with Belshazzar and what's going on in America today. We have forgotten the God of our fathers. We have forgotten that the nation that we live in was established according to God's laws. And now we're seeing the same actions as Belshazzar did, taking the things of God, openly mocking the things of God. Folks, the writing is on the wall. I believe judgment is coming, especially for the United States of America. Now, let me give you this side note. Even after judgment came to Belshazzar and Babylon, Daniel was still spared. Why? Because he was God's messenger. He was one of God. God always has plans for his own. God protects those that are his, and his hand governs our lives. 
But as I look around the world today, especially in America, I say we certainly are deserving of judgment. And what's interesting to me is there's really nowhere in Scripture uh, that, that I would say that, that uh, really mentions America in biblical prophecy. There's an obscure passage in Ezekiel that, that speaks of the young lions that some say, well, they could be, that could be America. And there are, there are those that, that say in the book of Revelation when it speaks about Babylon's destruction, that America is a modern day Babylon. And we'll get to that when we get to the book of Revelation. But again, be that as it may, the good news is according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us, his church, uh, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I encourage you to come out on one tonight. Pastor Bruce is going to look intensively at the rapture of the church being saved from the wrath to come. And again, that's the good news. Those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not experience the wrath of God. But make, make no mistake about it. I do believe the Lord's return for his church is at hand. And afterwards, once that, once that happens, all hell is going to break loose upon this earth. Writings on the, on the wall, judgment is inevitable, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. That's our second point, Jesus is coming soon. And all you need to do is get up in the morning, open up your headline news, take a look at that, and you'll see all the signs are falling into place. All the pieces of puzzle are all coming into place like no other time in human history. There are so many events happening in our world today that all point to the fact that, that Jesus, first of all, can come back for his church at any moment and then come back seven years later at the end of the tribulation period. Here's a picture I found on, on social media. It says, the Bible says, in the last days, and it has a checklist. Israel will become a nation again, check. Israel will become fruitful and green again, check. Lawlessness will abound, check. People will be offended. Check. People will hate each other. Check. The love of money will grow cold. Check. Every man will do what is right in their own eyes. Check. Men will be lovers of self. Check. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Check. There will be earthquakes in various places. Check. There will be famines. Check. Plagues. Check. Pestilence. Check. Followers of Christ will be killed for their faith. Check. I would say the only thing left is that Jesus will come back for his church. Not yet. (laughs) Very soon. Yet knowing these things, I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13 11, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Again, all of us, all around us are signs of the times that the Bible told us to look that would precede Jesus' return, that would precede what's going to happen. I want to look at, at three of them this morning. Now turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. If you've been with us a year ago, we went through the whole Gospel of Matthew, and we did hit some of these signs in Matthew 24, but uh, we're going to look at three specifically that I believe really we see today more than even a year ago we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 24, really three things describing the times in which we're living in this morning. Number one, deceptiveness. Number two, pestilence. And the third thing is lawlessness. Like I said, I think these apply to the things we're seeing today more than ever. Matthew 24 really is an overview of end times events. It's a chain of events that begins with the emergence of the Antichrist and ends with the return of Jesus Christ. These events, these things that we're about to read about, have not happened yet. But the signs that we are seeing today are all leading up to the complete fulfillment of Jesus' words found here in Matthew 24. Now look at verse 3 of Matthew 24. Jesus was asked a question. It says, Now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So the disciples, they wanted an end time study. They wanted to know eschatology, the study of end times, how everything was going to play out, what was going to happen, when it was going to happen. So Jesus answers their first question, for the first sign, with, with, with deception, deceptiveness. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Drop down to verse 11. That many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now, Satan has been a liar, a deceiver, 
a seducer, a corrupter from the very beginning. His spirits are lying spirits. His miracles are lying wonders. His interpretations of Scripture are deceptive and destructive. And he will use every form of wickedness to deceive people. But notice the words here. It says many will come. Not one will come, but many will come. And we often talk about the Antichrist, the ruler who will emerge during the tribulation period at the end of times will be this, this, this world-dominating, satanically-possessed ruler, very persuasive, very powerful, very energetic, and very charismatic. And we talk about him as, this is the Antichrist. And you're right. Yet listen to the words of John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even so, now many Antichrists have come by which we know is the last hour. Then John goes on further in 1 John 4, verse 3. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. See, there have been many and there will be a proliferation of false teachers, Antichrist, in the future tribulation period that will deceive people. But the spirit of Antichrist as John calls it, is alive and well and moving in our world today in this last hour. Now, why is that? Well, because whenever God works, Satan works. When you turn the light on in your front porch, you know what happens? All these, these bugs come out. When you turn God's light of the gospel on and start sharing it, Satan lets his bugs loose. They, they muck things up. You know, they, they're sent to confuse people with false ideas and false teachings. So everybody goes, well, you know, I don't know. Everybody has their own idea when it comes to God and, and, and who God is and the right way. And let's just embrace them all. and Let's just accept everything. And we see that today rampant. Not just false teaching, but false narratives. There's deception. I mean, the fake news that's out there. One side reporting. There's so much deception going on today that no one knows what to believe anymore. Yeah, we want to, uh, to be for black lives because black lives do matter. But the organization that runs Black Lives Matter needs to get their priorities straight. Because if they truly care, then they would care that abortion is the number one killer of black lives in America today. If they really cared, they'd be out protesting in front of Planned Parenthood instead of people's neighborhoods. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, abortion kills more black people than HIV, homicide, diabetes, accidents, cancer, and heart disease combined. Today, more than 28% of all black pregnancies end in induced abortion, about 1,000 babies per day. Don't tell me black lives matter when they don't to you. It's deceptive. It's deceptive. They have an underlying plan going on. When their webpage states this, we are expansive. We are a collective of liberators who believe in an inclusive and spacious movement. We affirm lives of black, queer, and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. So basically what they're saying is by their own admission that if it's racist if you speak out against homosexuality and transgenderism. Satan has the, the, the art of deception down. Convince people not to be racist against black people, but then slide that racism into homosexuality and transgenderism, and suddenly every sinful lifestyle and behavior has to be accepted or you will be considered racist. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am all for treating everybody with respect, no matter who you are or what you believe or what race or gender you are or claim to be. We need to show the love of God to all that are out there. There's no reason to treat anyone, anyone, with any disdain or prejudice. But when it comes to teaching of God's Word, we have to teach the whole counsel of God. And when we get to a part in God's Word where it calls homosexuality a sin, we will cover that just as at any other topic we talk about sin from God's Word. But here's my point. Certainly no one wants to be accused of actual racism. 
But if the enemy could get in anti-sin and classify that as racism, then they can get into the churches and attempt to shut them down for preaching against sin, calling it racism. And they go, I don't believe you. That can't happen, Pastor Tom. Listen to what Joe Biden said back in October in response to a question asked at a town hall meeting about the acceptance of homosexuality. Biden advocated for a registry of all religious organizations that won't toe the line of of the radical gay agenda. And he said this, quote, What we had before to deal with hate crimes was we had a position in our administration, him and Obama, within both the Department of Justice as well as within Homeland Security, a provision to keep watch on these groups that we know are out there. Like terrorist groups, they are similar. What's he saying? Who's similar? Religious organizations are similar. He goes, unlike terrorist groups are similar that we know are out there to be able to follow without violating their First Amendment rights. So, Christians are like terrorists and apparently Biden wants to put Christian groups on a hate watch list to target them for prosecution and find some way to get around the First Amendment, which is the separation of church and state. That's what he said. See, I do believe in the last days we're going to see more and more deception taking place. Not just false teachers. They're going to be out there, and they are out there, but false everything. People today are more deceived than they've ever been. Well, what's next? Well, this brings us to the second sign we see Jesus is coming, and that is pestilence. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 24. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. A word for pestilence means widespread contagious disease often associated with divine retribution. Now, let me say this concerning the virus that we're looking at today. We who are Christians, we need to be ready and willing at all times to show compassion and mercy and help wherever and whenever there's a need for that. And I'm persuaded that this compassion and service includes reassuring people that this virus that's going on currently is not one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that, that the numbers in any scenario fall far short of what is predicted in Revelation chapter 6. Now with that said, we have always had pestilences. There's always been contagious diseases going on. And let's just go back to the very first centuries after Jesus' life. Two historic plagues took place in the Roman Empire, ravaged the Roman Empire. The Antonine Plague of 165 to 180 AD, also known as the Plague of Galen, was an ancient pandemic brought to the Roman Empire by troops who were returning from campaigns from the Far East. Another plague, the Cyprian Plague, 250 to 270 AD, broke out in Rome. Estimates said that that plague killed about 5,000 people per day. Total killed by these viruses approximately a quarter to a third of the population, killing three emperors and ravaging the empire. Keeps going. AD 541, the plague of Justinian reached the Byzantine capital of Constantinople and was soon claiming up to 10,000 lives per day. Then there was the Black Death that struck Europe. 1347 wiped out whole towns. It was said that the living spent most of the time burying the dead in mass graves. It lasted about five years and killed as many as 50 million people, more than half the population of Europe. Many people in that time thought it was the end of the world. Obviously, we're still here. Then it was the Italian plague in 1629 to 1631, an outbreak of the bubonic plague that wound up killing 280,000 people, including half the residents of the, uh, the Verona, Italy. The Republic of Venice lost nearly a third of its population of 140,000 people. But that wasn't the end, even though people thought, hey, this is the end. Then there was a great plague of London that struck between 1665 and 66, At its peak in September of 65, some 8,000 people were dying each week. City records indicate that some 68,596 people died during this epidemic, though the actual number of deaths is suspected to have exceeded 100,000 people of a total population of only 460,000. And a pandemic that some of our great-grandparents may remember was the Spanish flu of 1918. It affected over a third of the world's population and took the lives of 20 to 50 million people. So what makes COVID-19 any different 
than the other pestilences that we've had in the past. It's certainly not killing anywhere near the numbers from the plagues in the past. How is that a sign that we're living in the last days? Let me say, it's not the disease, it's secure. It's not the disease, it's secure. This pandemic has the attention of every world government working together in a common cause to fight against this dangerous threat. And it's like, for those of you that are old, if you remember 1985, the song, We Are the World, you know. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones that are going to make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a better day. Just you and me. Hey, we don't need God. We don't need God. It's man thinking they can get through this pandemic without God. And we just pull together and work together. You say, oh, come on, Pastor Tom. That, that can't be so, really. Listen to what Chris Cuomo News anchor for CNN said recently on air about COVID-19. If you believe in one another and if you do the right thing for yourself and your community, things will get better in this country. You don't need help from above. It's within us. Actual words. We don't need God. We can handle this. Oh, Chris Belshazzar Cuomo. Watch out. I mean, watch out. Don't mock God. I mean, that's the attitude in the world today. We don't need God. And that's what makes COVID-19 so different than all the other plagues. It's being used for this push of humanism and, and globalism. The need for one government, one world government task force to control the virus. There is talk from those in authority wanting to keep track all of those who have been vaccinated, once that vaccine becomes available, by taking a microchip the size of a grain of rice and inserting it under your skin and scanning it wherever you go to make sure that you've been vaccinated or not. And I can easily see you not being able to go to the grocery store and buy food if you can't prove that you've been vaccinated. And I have to tell you, folks, I honestly didn't see this coming. I mean, I knew that I mean, the Lord's coming back, and I knew we we're going to have a one world of government, and all these things were happening. But I did not think that, that a pestilence, the, the, the virus, would be something that would usher us in to this time like this. But I do now. There are technical, uh, technological tools already developed to track everyone in the world, and a virus is a perfect reason to do so. Hey, hey we need to know. Many countries are implementing a system of facial recognition and GPS locators to spy on everyone in the world. Phones can record conversations even when the phones are turned off. This whole pestilence, this whole covenant thing can also lead to a one-world monetary system. The caste of society spoken of in God's Word that, that the Bible says will happen in the last days. I mean, look at the economy. Every economy in the whole world has been affected by this. And if we keep on printing out money and handing out money like candy, it's going to not be very long before a dollar's not worth anything anymore. And they're going to say, well, we need to do something else. See, large-scale changes in our financial systems can open the door for a one-world government, one-world currency. Every nation of the world is sapped with crushing debt. Banking could change dramatically. That's why I say it's not the disease, it's the cure. My point is that with this virus, the foundation for the mark of the beast is all being laid as we speak to implement that final global economic system even before the Antichrist is revealed. No other time in history could have spawned the mark of the beast and no other generation but ours could have understood how this system would operate. But we are seeing it very clearly today. The writing is on the wall. Jesus is coming soon. So we've seen A, deceptiveness, B, pestilence. Our third thing we're seeing now is lawlessness. Look at verse 12 of Matthew 24. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I mean, what we're currently witnessing in America is nothing short of lawlessness. And it's quite obvious that the goal of the powers of darkness is to destroy the rule of law in America, through any means possible, using deceived people into thinking by destruction they can bring about change, destroying national monuments that they know nothing about. Added to the liberal media that just just 
feeds into this whole thing and, and justifying lawlessness all around. They only seem to worsen the situations, not better. You know, like COVID-19 or like the riots we've seen. The only thing positive that, that liberal media puts out there is, oh, you know, we, we, we got a lot more tests that we're doing, test results. But if there's anything good they mention, they got to mention 20 things that are bad, you know. Things that, oh, this isn't good and, and, and this isn't good. To a reasonable person, it's as if they're trying to ensure that the COVID-19 crisis lasts as long as possible. And the media can and does control the response to the crisis. They, they certainly know that. And we certainly can see as believers that when the time comes that nothing will stop them from laying out the red carpet for that man of sin, the Antichrist, when he's revealed. They're going to welcome him with open arms. But back up to, to Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8 for a moment. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The same Greek word translated as wars there in verse 6 is also used by James to describe quarrels. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? It's as if Jesus is warning us of the mobs and the riots that we're now seeing more and more and more of around the world. Because the word that Jesus uses for wars can also mean battles. And no one can deny that what we're currently seeing around America's cities today is nothing short of battles. Again, in verse 7, he says, For nation will rise against nation. That Greek word that Jesus uses for nation means nationality, ethnicity, or race. In other words, the warning given by Jesus as to what the last generation would witness right before the Great Tribulation could rightly be translated as this. And you will hear of riots and rumors of riots. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For race will rise against race, and country against country, and there will be famines, viruses, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. I mean, with social media, information spreads at light speed, both true and false information, what's really happening, what's rumored to happen. And again, mobs tearing down statues and stores and monuments and police stations and anything they can get their hands on. The words wars and battles really seem to be very, very appropriate. It's obvious that the, the, these, these folks have no real cause except to hate all righteous authority. You know, the Bible says that'll happen. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. It seems based upon Christ's warnings here that the next step we're going to see very soon is... is really, uh, uh, the wars against one another. You know, countries fighting one another. Again, the writing is on the wall. Earthquakes has increased in various places, places where there haven't been earthquakes before. I read there's a brand new Ebola virus outbreak in the Congo. We can't forget the plague of locusts in, in, in Africa, you know, the severe famine in, in uh, parts of the world. All this is already happening. Why not military warfare? It seems to be the next thing on the horizon. And just, and just to really encourage you, you know, the hurricane season is coming up next and it's supposed to be the worst in a long time. Not a whole lot of good news. How bad will it get? Well, let me say this, church. Exactly when the true, faithful, watching, waiting, and warning church will be caught to meet Jesus will determine how much more trouble we're going to witness. How much more we're going to see before it takes us to be with Him. In other words, we're not promised that life won't be difficult. But we are promised that our God will give us the strength to continue to endure until He takes us home to be with Him. And nothing that is happening is outside God's knowledge, power, His hand is on it, and He has the ability, as I said already, to protect His own. He has an exact date picked out. 
already when the rapture will take place, when Jesus will come back, uh, when we will stand before him, uh, while the rest of the world is standing before the Antichrist. All these things Jesus said would happen are going to happen. You have his word on it. We're told in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Let me read part of that in the New Living Translation. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan to come to pass Everything I, will pl- everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. One final thing. Verse 9 of Matthew 24. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who is that you that he's speaking of? Well, I can't refer to the disciples because they never were around to see the things Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. For example, they didn't see the the enduring through the end of the age of the tribulation. They didn't see the disciples that Jesus was addressing at at this moment. They never saw a worldwide evangelism as mentioned in verse 14. The disciples that Jesus was speaking to never saw the abomination of desolations predicted in verse 15. The disciples that heard this message and never saw the stars fall out of heaven and the sun lose its light and the heavens go dark as predicted in verse 29. So when he says you there in verse, uh, in the verse there, he's not speaking to those disciples. He's not speaking of us, you and I either, the church. Rather, the you he's speaking of is referring to the end time believers who will see the events happen during the Great Tribulation. Those believers at the end of time who will be around to see the event of the Great Tribulation will go, whoa, Jesus said these things would happen in his word. Let me say, well, Tom, are you saying that we're going to go through the Great Tribulation? I mean, I thought you taught us there's a rapture before the Great Tribulation. God's not appointed us to rapture. There's believers during the Great Tribulation period? Absolutely. It's simple. After the rapture of the church, people are going to get saved. They're going to get saved. So if the rapture happens today, and then there's a seven-year tribulation in front of us, there are no believers in the rest of the world, what's going to happen? Well, number one, the Bible predicts that there will be witnesses who will come during that period of time with miraculous power. Some believe that that these are the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. These two witnesses are going to have uh, an impact on the Jewish nation so that 144,000 Jewish people get saved, according to Revelation chapter 7. They're sealed for God's service during the tribulation period. Now think about this, 144,000 Jewish believers. Have you talked to or met Jewish believers? Someone who's, who's born again. I think of Joel Rosenberg. I mean, the impact that that man has had, I mean, he got converted. I think of the Christian singer-songwriter Marty Getz. I mean, this guy just loves the Lord. And man, when he sings, it's like, like David is singing on a, mil, a hilltop someplace. You go, oh man, that's what it had to be like. Almost every Jewish believer that I've, I've seen, there's this great power that comes in knowing, hey, here's my heritage, here's my history. It's interesting that, that we call him a, a completed Jew, or Messianic Jew, believing that Jesus is their Messiah. So we have these two witnesses that are come, going to come on the scene and prompt 144,000 Jews to be saved during the tribulation period. Imagine 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. They turn the world upside down. And they're going, that 144,000, they'll prompt an innumerable amount of Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus Christ. See, these are the, the you that he's speaking of. These are the souls spoken of in the book of Revelation that we will see when we get there that are under the altar. Not only that, but the Bible says during the Great Tribulation, God is going to send an angel throughout the whole earth in the skies, in the heavens, to give one last final call. Has someone ever said to you, well, you know, like if an angel flew through heaven, then I'll believe. Well, God's going to do that. (laughs) He's going to send an angel to every tribe, every tongue, and every single human on earth will see and hear the final everlasting gospel preached to that angel. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. John speaking. 
Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. My point is, yes, there will be believers during the Great Tribulation, but not the church, as we will see in our studies of Revelation starting next week. But notice, as we wind down and get ready for communion, what Jesus says about these events in verse 8 of Matthew 24. He says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Just the beginnings. That word sorrows could be translated birth pangs. You know, if you're a woman, you've had children, you know what a birth pain is. It's called contractions. And, and you know, man, when labor starts, you know, generally speaking, oh, the stomach gets a little tight. I think, okay, you know what, it might be time. I don't know, they're 15 minutes apart, 20 minutes apart. I'm just going to keep an eye on them. But they get a little bit stronger. Oh, they're 10 minutes apart. You think this, I don't know if it's, I don't know, 10 minutes apart. Then it's 5 minutes apart. Then it's two minutes apart. And then it's just pain. Just, ah, oh, pain. And you're going, oh man, gotta breathe, gotta breathe, gotta breathe. You're calling your husband up Hey, I think it's time, I think it's time. I'll, you know, get to the hospital and then you go in and you got your husband has to stay out because of COVID. But anyway, um, I'm not bitter over that stuff. But they, they get stronger and stronger and stronger. The pain gets stronger until finally that, that baby is born. And it's just one big pain and, and out they come. And after that, the baby's on us, oh, praise the Lord, oh, what a blessing. And you forget all that sorrow. It might take you a few hours, a few days, some 18 years, but, but you know, forget. <laughs> oh, that child has come into the world. What a blessing. But before that child was born, you might have thought, I don't want to do this. I, 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 I can't have this baby. We should never start this whole process. Take me home. And you're freaking out. But the point is, the labor pains are getting longer and harder and closer together until it's time for that child to come into this world. Jesus said, listen, labor started. The, the, the pains are there. All these things. The world is laboring right now, waiting to give birth, really, to the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. It's really a shame to me that the world has, has stolen the term new age because when Jesus Christ comes back and he ushers in his kingdom, it's going to bring a new age. It's going to be a utopian society that men are dreaming of when Jesus will sit on his throne and rule and reign righteously. That is when righteousness will cover the earth as water covers the sea. But think about this. You know, in the, the Jewish uh, day, it begins at sunset. And so that beginning at sunset, it gets darker and darker and darker until just before dawn. It's, it's darkest just before dawn. Well, the kingdom age, which is ushered by the second coming of Jesus Christ, it will get darker just before dawn. There will be famine, there will be wars, there will be earthquakes. All of these things will intensify and culminate during the Great Tribulation. At the end, it will give birth to the kingdom age or the new age, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful time that will be when Christ will reign on this earth. Folks, right now, it's kind of like twilight. You know, kind of that hazy what we're seeing right now. Where just, just The birth pains, the writings on the wall. Things are going to get a whole lot worse for planet Earth. That's why Paul put it this way for us as believers. Romans thirteen twelve. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of life. My prayer first and foremost is that if there's anyone here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not born again, you don't know that your sin is forgiven, don't wait another moment. None of us know how long we're going to have. Listen, the finger of God wrote a message on the wall for Belshazzar and everyone else to see. You know, it's that same finger that etched the Ten Commandments in stone given to Moses as he descended from Mount Sinai. It's that same finger of God that rolled in the sand when Jesus walked this earth and a woman who was caught in adultery and the Jewish leaders brought her in and threw her in front of Jesus and said, Oh, you know, the law says she needs to be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And the Bible says that Jesus stooped down and started writing in the sand. It doesn't tell us what he wrote. I would have loved to have that recorded. And he wrote this. But the Bible says that, that they left from oldest to the youngest. So whatever he wrote, it made them feel really, really uncomfortable. I think maybe they wrote his first, their first name and the sin that they were committing. I mean, he cleared the room. And all that was left was him and that woman. And he says to the woman, Hey, woman, where are your accusers? 
And she says to him, Lord, I don't have any. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. See, God this morning is offering you the same thing, forgiveness, if you come to Him and believe in Him. Listen, there's a time coming, a day when your number's up, when, when my number's up. You know, there's going to come a day when life will end. There's going to be a last day for every one of us. There's going to be a last day uh, for every nation, every person, every meal, a last statement, a last breath, a last, uh, and then eternity. And yet Jesus said to the believer in John 11:25. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, when a non-believer dies, they go to hell. And we don't hear that a lot preached today. We choke on that word. But it's a real place for real people. And the last thing that God wants for, for anybody is for them to go to hell, to spend eternity apart from him. That's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the price on the cross and be tortured and beaten and murdered in cold blood so you don't have to face this judgment. But if you refuse the offer of Jesus Christ to forgive you and end up in hell, you'll have no one to blame that final day but yourself. God wants you to go to heaven. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait another moment. Just just say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. I give my life to you this morning. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me of my sin. Make that commitment to him and he'll come into your life. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. And he'll give you his Holy Spirit to help you walk with him. For those of us that know Christ, as we enter into communion, you know, if Jesus were were writing in the sand something about you, what would he write? Is there anything that he would write down that you need to confess? That you need to say, Lord, man, I'm blowing it here. And I'm so sorry. We want to cast off the works of darkness. We want to walk in His light, especially in the days in which we're coming. So as we prepare to receive communion, just pray, Lord, if there's anything in my life, anything you would write down, help me to see it and confess it and be right with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your promise. Lord, of your soon return. We thank you, Lord, of your promise that, that we as your people are not appointed to wrath, but to sal- for salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for each one of our sins. He, he went to the cross willingly. He took the stripes on his back willingly. He took the beard pulled from his face willingly. He let them stretch out his arms on that cross. He let them pound the nails into his hands and his feet. He let them put himself to death. The Bible says that Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I give my life to be a ransom for many. Lord God, we thank you that as we come to the communion table, that's what it represents, what you did for us, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed for us upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we can remember what was done for us. And that just makes us love you more and more and makes us want to sin less and less and less. Not that we ever become sinless on this side of eternity, but that we would live lives to please you and all that we do. Lord, if there's anything in my life, in our lives, that you would write down in the sand to get to our attention, Lord, help us to see that, that we can confess it and be right with you this morning. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.